0: Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's word.
1: It's Monday, October 4th, 2021. This is Mark Sly. I serve as the Vice President of International Ministries at Lifeline Children's Services. And today we're continuing our study in the book of Romans in chapter seven. Last week in Romans chapter six, we looked at the fact that grace is greater than sin, but that doesn't mean that we dismiss our sin and make a mockery of grace. We cannot, we must not cheapen grace and brush it off in a cavalier fashion as if it had no value or cost. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and it is a great way to transition from last week into chapter seven this week. In The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He goes on to say that cost it is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has Cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So in light of this, Paul commends us to consider ourselves dead to sin, to fight against our sinful nature, and to view ourselves as slaves to righteousness. Righteousness. And I love what Paul says in verse 22 of chapter six, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. That phrase, the fruit you get, as we consider ourselves dead to sin, but bound to Christ, fruit is given. We get it, we receive it. And that fruit of the work of God's spirit within us leads to eternal life. It isn't something that we work for, that we deserve, or that we earn. We get it as we surrender to the unmerited work of Christ in our lives. This free gift that cost our savior his life is the pinnacle of grace for all time. So in chapter seven, Paul continues with an illustration and clarification for his readers using the idea of marriage to make his point. And we will pick up in verse one. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And using the metaphor of marriage, Paul, in very plain terms, demonstrates that you and I are, in fact, bound to another prior to our coming to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are slaves, bound to and, in a sense, married to and identified with sin. I think it helps us a little bit to understand this concept when we take a moment to reflect on the relatable practice of marriage in our own world that demonstrates this now i realize that it may not be as common as it once was and it certainly isn't necessarily in every context and culture and you may have strong opinions one way or another but the idea in our present culture here in birmingham alabama is that a husband and wife marry. And the bride takes the last name of her husband. And it's a good way to think about what Paul is saying here. Prior to marriage, we all have the last name of the family that we are born or adopted into. However, there is an intentional act of ending the identification with one family in order to be identified as belonging, not just with one another, but as one another when you join together in marriage. With the same family name. It is the expression of leave and cleave that we find not only in Genesis, but also in Ephesians chapter five. I once was in this family. We are now a family of our own, so to speak. Now, take that idea of being identified with one family and being joined into another, and let's apply that to what Paul is saying here that prior to our repentance and surrender to Christ, we are identified with and bound to sin. And not to be overly graphic, but I think that by simply just saying that it's quote unquote sin in a conceptual way, it almost sanitizes it for those of us who grew up in a church setting. So what Paul is really saying here is that you and I are bound to and identified with the family of rape, murder, gossip, adultery, lying, and abuse. And we may not be guilty of every one of those things, but from the viewpoint of the eternal holiness of God... There is evil and there is righteous, and we were married, identified with, and bound to the former after we become followers of Christ. But praise God, we know from Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 10, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Paul continues this idea in Ephesians chapter one and says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ.'" according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious Christ, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul continues 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, and says, Our God has declared that I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, I wish you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. Do bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Think about that for a second, that contrast of being once aligned with and identified with sin and rape and murder and gossip and strife and hatred. And now we are welcomed into the family of God. In one moment, we were not just disconnected from, but we were in opposition to our holy creator, identified with the most sinister and vile. And in the next, we're clean, we're accepted, and we're treasured as the bride of Christ. We belong to another. We are released to serve in the new way of the spirit. And so we move from this illustration to two items that I think Paul wants to clarify before moving on to what we will read in chapter eight. And as we read this, you can sense the caring and preemptive manner in which Paul is writing. Picking up in verse seven of chapter seven, he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, we shall not covet. and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be showed to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the first thing that Paul wants to clarify here for his readers and for us is the role of the law. At this point, someone could be reading along and begin to think that Paul is saying that because we are released from the law, the law is the evil thing that Jesus came to free us from. However, Paul instead declares that the law is holy and good. Why? Because the law is acting as the agent that is, when applied to our lives, reveals to us what is in fact broken and sinful within us. A few weeks ago, we had a, a joy and an opportunity to meet with a ministry called A Child's Hope International. And in their gospel-centered efforts to provide humanitarian aid all over the world, they send out a product made by Procter & Gamble. It's actually the technical term for this type of product is a flocculent. And basically, when these chemicals are poured into a bucket of water that is dirty and polluted, Those pollutants and microbes in the water, they bind to the chemical and drop to the bottom, killing the bacteria and the viruses while separating the particles so that clean, drinkable water can be accessed. Now, what this chemical, this flocculant is doing physically, that is exactly what God designed the law to do for us spiritually. Prior to knowing and understanding the law, our lives are filled with all manner of sin and evil. When the law is then applied, it allows us to recognize how broken and sinful we are in contrast to the purity of God's holiness. The chemical and the law are not the dirty or sinful elements, rather they expose them in order for us to see the desperate need we have for a solution for salvation. At some point, the water must then be filtered And separated from its impurities. And that obviously is made easier by the chemical. But we must be saved from and separated from our sin. So Christ's blood is applied on our behalf, covering our sin and allowing for our very nature to be transformed, which brings us to Paul's second clarification in verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is great, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. For if I do not want, if I do not do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul is saying that when we recognize our own sinful behavior, we are seeing that the law is doing its work in bringing our sinful nature to our recognition. He continues in verse 21 saying, so I find it to be the law, that when I do the right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law that's waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, ah, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I find that I serve the law of sin. Now at first glance my thought is Paul has now lost his mind. What he is recognizing maybe isn't sin versus righteousness may it feels kind of like he has splits in his personality. But before I become too judgmental of Paul I need to see that what he is doing is actually acknowledging what we all experience. He's shifting from theology and philosophical implications of sin And the gospel and salvation, he's shifting to the way in which this process of redemption and moving from one family to another, being bound to sin and then joining my life with Christ, what that actually looks and feels like. Much like his previous example of marriage, there is a moment when this reality of becoming a part of God's family, it takes place positionally. And there's another level at which this takes place progressively or processively. There's a day on which a wedding takes place and a name is changed. But who that couple looks like, what their family traditions are, their rhythms, how they approach life together, and how they approach parenting, and what that looks like, it all takes time to differentiate itself from the families of the husband and the wife and what they grew up in. And even if you are not married, if you spent any time around extended relatives, you see glimpses of what your parents' families look like in contrast to what you experienced. Some things suddenly make sense to you and say, aha, that's where my mom's odd fixation with that horrible fragrance comes from. Or now I see why my dad obsesses over the oil level in my car so much, regardless of what those nuances are. What we all can agree on is that at some level, some of these things are really strange. We are often grateful for the changes our families have made in contrast with our, well, odd cousins. And the other thing we realize is that we all fight some strange tendencies in our own lives that have to be filtered out over time. The same is true of our sin. There's a new and growing desire in our lives to love and pursue Christ. When we become followers of jesus but there are still elements of our old sinful nature or family if you will that are in the process of being identified and filtered out and much like paul describes his own consternation that process can be so frustrating in our own lives at times so in verses 1 through 13 paul declares what is true about us prior to coming to know christ as lord and savior how the law leads us to understand why we need a savior and our identity changes when we experience salvation. And here in verses 14 through 25, Paul is acknowledging that when these truths play themselves out in the lives of a believer, it's messy. But knowing is half the battle, according to G.I. Joe, I think. Positionally, we're the bride of Christ, but progressively our gown becomes more fitting and wider each day. So brothers and sisters, like those who extended relatives are, well, slightly strange and dysfunctional, let us flee our past and pursue our identification with and direct our affections towards our new groom and family. And for those days when we fear that we more resemble the spiritual family of our past than that of our present and future, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about Paul's reason for this passage. He preached, it was to show us that there is a way of sure deliverance in Christ. That which he had already said in verses 14 of chapter six, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. Chapter seven is an exposition and elaboration of that theme, all is well. Paul seems to say, you are not under the law. You are like the woman whose husband is dead. You are dead to the law and you are married to another, even to him that was raised from the dead, who is full of life and power. Let us celebrate today, brothers and sisters, the costly grace that was purchased to make this new family possible. Could I challenge you as we wrap up our time in chapter seven, could I challenge you to pursue a deeper understanding of God's law and word? so that we can more clearly identify the elements of each of our lives, which need to be filtered out so that others can better experience Jesus when they are around us. So here are four questions that maybe you could consider as you continue to internalize the truths that are in Romans chapter seven. Are there elements of my old life that I've carried into my new one? Are there habits, perspectives? areas that I might justify with statements like, well, that's just the way I am, or, well, that's just how I feel. Another question to consider, what is God currently teaching you about yourself that needs to look more like him? And honestly, if you don't know, then you're probably not in the word the way that you should be. Each and every time I come to the word, I am forced to self-examine and filter out those things that don't best resemble the character and the nature of my savior. Third question, do you demonstrate the same grace and patience that God has shown you in your process of becoming more like him to those that you live and work with? Do you live out that same grace and forbearance with the people that are around you that God gives you each and every day as that process continues in your own life of moving from one family to another? And finally, when was the last time that you expressed your genuine gratitude to God for pursuing you and providing the only means for you to be a part of his family? I think sometimes we are often prone to dismiss or glaze over how important it is for us to express our gratitude and our worship and our praise to God for taking us out of the sinful, vile family alignment and identification that we once had with our sinful nature and moving us into His family and then working in us to better reflect who He is. He is worthy of every bit of praise and honor and glory from our lips, from our worship, from our lives, from our affections, from our pursuits. And right now, I would simply just ask you to take a few minutes and just express to him right where you are, how grateful you
0: are for all that God has done for you.